Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of our weekly Halakha 101 class taught by Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. So those of you who were with us last week know that we kind of went now from this idea of just toiling, right, just doing this dunking of an of a vessel for it to even come into your home as something that could be used to now really the idea of koshering, um, of making something such that you can use it and such that if you needed to, you could actually move it from, or maybe not move it, but um, change it from milchik to fleshik or from milk to meat uh, and by by nullifying it by making it something in the middle by essentially making it parv first so that you then can use it for one thing or the other so this um th- this this part that we're going to get to in just a second is going to go through all the different types of uh vessels for which you might do Hagalah or you might do Libun. So Libun is with fire and Hagalah is the dunking into boiling water. Um, there are different variations of Hagalah and Libun uh, in terms of intensity. So we're going to get to that a little bit later, but sometimes you can just pour boiling water over something and in other cases it needs to go all the way in and be dunked. So again, it goes back to the to the um, the principle that we talked about last week, which is kevolo kachpolto, right? The way in which you utilize something is the way in which you're also going to kosher it or get rid of the substance that you are trying to get rid of in order to to make it a a clean slate to, to nullify it back to whatever you would like it to to be in your kitchen. So before we go on with the specifics here, does anybody have any questions on that principle or just on the general uh, kind of premise that we're jumping off into? Uh, yes, Jeff, for Koshering. Is burying in dirt just an old wives' tale? We talked about this last week. Um, so it's interesting. There, it's, I wasn't here. No, I know, I know. It's okay. I'm just laughing because we spent a lot of time on it last week. Um, the It seems as though it's not an old wives' tale. However, the way in which it, it has kind of become used is more exaggerated than the rabbis expected it to be used. So it seems as though the the insertion of like a fork or something into dirt to get it to that nullified station, right? That I'll use parv as a, um, as, as a koshering word here seems to be just that you would leave it alone for a set amount of time before you actually could use it again. It doesn't do the same process of getting rid of the the meatness or the milkness of a thing, but it but it allows it to be ready for that process. Um, I think it was Joanna who brought in the Gamara piece that we actually looked at on this last week, um, and then and then we had you know some conversations around how different people used it in their families. But it seems as though back in the day it was just used as another one of those um, nullification tools before you would actually do the koshering. Um, okay, any other questions, thoughts on this before we look into some details? Okay, all right, let's, let's get into it. 
All right, so this is the second Saif of your, sorry, I'm just moving you all around here so I can see. So we talked about the first Saif here of Siman 121. We talked about this a little bit last week, which gave us a general understanding of what, um, what you would use Libun fire for and what you, you would use Hagalah water for. And so now we're going into the second, the second one here. So it says, Sorry, So if a person takes from them, meaning the idol worshippers, any kinds of vessels that were used with any kind of fire, um, I'll scroll here so you can try to follow along with the English, um, whether they were made of metal, so that was mitacha, uh, Matechet, did I say mitachat before? Anyway, uh, made of metal, uh, wood, eights, or stone, even, uh, you would dunk them in boiling water. So it seems as though if you have a metal item or an item made of wood or an item made of stone, that you can dunk them in boiling water. Um, and afterwards, you then can, can toivel them. So... The, this is talking about a case in which you would kosher something before you toivel it. Um, I would say in today's world, we don't, we do kind of, we do the opposite. If anybody does anything, we very rarely, though if someone has an example, I'm happy to hear it, would kosher a thing and then toivel it. Um, we typically would toivel a thing because it's new to us and then we would kosher it based on how we're going to use it in our own kitchen. Kitchen. Um, so here, I'll show you this again. Sorry, it's hard to see the Hebrew and the, uh, and the English at the same time. Um, okay, so here. If you dip them, if you dip this metal vessel, vessel in a mikvah first, and then you dunk them in boiling hot water, they are permitted. So this is what I was just explaining, that that's kind of how we, most of us would do it today, that you would buy a thing, you would then toivel it, and then you would, and then you would kosher it. And there are those who say, I'm just going to continue in the English for ease. And there are those who say that they must be dipped in the mikvah again. So there are those who say, you can do it that way, but then you need to go back to the mikvah. Um... The Ramah, Rabbi Moshe Israelis says, this is also the rule regarding a vessel made of bones. So that in today's day would be uh, probably similar to ceramic, uh, sorry, not ceramic, um, China. And, and we know that there was a time and place where China was sometimes bone China um, or ivory, right? That's, that's what they're talking about here, something that's a little bit more porous than the other materials that we were talking about. And it's telling us to go see the laws of Passover. And that that's where most of the koshering laws come in. Because again, as we talked about in the first class of this series, Passover is the time that we are doing the most stringent koshering. Because for all the reasons that you know, <laughs> that we try to clean our kitchen and make sure that all the chametz is gone. So this is, uh, this is basically showing us, okay, if you want to know more, you can find more in the laws of Pesach. Um, in this particular siman, which we'll get to at some point in the next however many years. One should not dunk a vessel in boiling water. 
when the vessel has been used within the past 24 hours. So this actually gets back, back to Jeff's question, right, which is where I assume the dirt piece came into play. That you were putting, and I, maybe it was Norm who said that his family used to have a, a cupboard that would say, you know, you can't use this until such and such a date. That you would put things aside because after 24 hours, they're, they're nullified to a certain status anyway. And so if you put them away, you are doing kind of the, the first step of nullification, so to speak. So you shouldn't kosher them. If, if the vessel has been used in the past 24 hours, you cannot then kosher. You have to wait those 24 hours, which is why last week when we were talking about Passover a little bit, I mentioned that people who try to do all of their koshering in one day are, are it's admirable to want to, but you're not really supposed to because you're supposed to wash your items, whether that's in a dishwasher or by hand, and then let them rest and then kosher them. So you're really not supposed to do it all at the same time. You're supposed to have some time in between for that initial nullification to set in. Um, and one should not use the water from the boiling. So um, I'm not actually sure what that's referring to. Let me see if I can find the Hebrew. Uh, I'm not sure what that is referring to. Uh, yeah, Norm. You mentioned the possibility of washing in the dishwasher before koshering. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that if you stuck something that was unkosher into your kosher dishwasher, you might be trafing up the oh. dishwasher. Yeah, let me clarify. Sorry. I, I didn't mean that something was unkosher. I was just, I was, um, I was clarifying that especially on Pesach, when you are going to be koshering, let's say, my meat utensils that I use every day to be able to use them for Passover, they're in my drawer right now, clean, ready to be used on a regular Monday. But before I kosher them for Passover, I have to clean them first, and then I let them rest, and then I can kosher them. Yes, you are. You're correct. If you're, you know, if you if you use your knife to cut something that that you found out later was trafe or that was dairy and it was a meat knife. You, you would definitely have to clean it by hand, then kosher it, and then you could put it in the dishwasher. Sorry, I wasn't clear. Thank you. Uh, Joanna, yeah, sure. I just want to check, double check that I'm following this correctly. Yeah. If I, you know, I'm traveling, let's say, in the example we've been using in the Far East, and I purchase a new vessel from someone considered to be an idol worshiper. Yeah then what's required is to do the dunking, to toivel the dish. What we're reading now is talking about if I acquire a dish that has already been used for cooking by the idol worshiper, right? So it's not like the idol worshiper manufacturer making something brand new. This now is about a used dish. I have to both kosher by some method, boiling or whatever, or dunking or whatever, and then toyable the dish. Correct. So you are correct, and there's the added piece of this also works for just general koshering in our home. So the the caveat that you're giving to it is the example that's being used in the Shulchan Aruch, and the, the way that I introduced it last week is this is also just how we kosher no matter what when it comes to a vessel in our home that we want to either make kosher for Passover or make kosher because we want it to be milk and it was once meat. Um, so yes, 
but if I've traced up a dish in my home, assuming there are no idol worshippers who live in my home, yeah. don't I just have to do like the immersion in boiling water? I don't have to do tvila. Correct. Correct. So yes, the tvila part. That's why. That's why I was saying before that very often the way that we associate um, our our vessels with tvila is only once we've bought them. It, before the kashering process, what you are referring to is yes, if you buy something from someone that's already been used, you could choose to either kosher it first and then dunk it, or as we saw at the end of this passage. To go and take it to a mikvah and then kosher, but then they're suggesting you take it back to the mikvah. So yeah, you're that's exactly right. You've got you've got it, uh, Mike, Karen, and then Tybal. Yeah, I assume that the that the statement that you uh, can't use the water yeah. means means that you wouldn't take the the pot of water that you now have boiling and make a a stock for for soup out of it. Oh, you think that you it means you wouldn't don't cook eat with it, it. Like don't eat it? Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's definitely possible. Thank you. Yeah, I would not have thought of, <laughs> I definitely wasn't thinking of using it then for any kind of consumption. So yeah, great. Uh, Karen. This may be very kindergarten question. <clears throat> you say, I love, dunk- I love kindergartners. So this will okay, be. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you say dunk and then kosher. Yeah. I just dunked. So yeah. what at in Beth Am with the big pots. Sure. So I didn't kosher it? So Betham with the big pots is koshering. Um, that is very rarely enough water to be considered a mikvah for kaleem, um, unless someone's seen that happen at Betham before my time. Um, but very often what's happening at Betham, if anybody's taking out any pots and people are bringing their own, it's often for koshering specifically. Yeah. So what, what what they're referring to here is if you're dipping an item in a mikvah, first of all, it doesn't have to be boiling, right? It's just regular, it could be any any temperature water. Uh, but if you're koshering it, it has to be boiling water. It has so to it's be, not a prayer thing. It's not a prayer thing. There, there is a prayer when you're dunking, or it is not. Correct. Oh, so koshering means in the boiling water. Koshering means in the boiling water. There is no prayer. Um, Tevila is just to bring it home into your home from okay. someone who might have used it for idol worship. Uh, okay. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. That was not a kindergarten question. I'm a first grader now. First grader. <laughs> Good job. You got it. Uh, Tyvel. Um, I was thinking about Joanna's distinction of traveling wherever where there might be idols and buying something. Yeah. Versus whatever. And I thought that I'm wondering, and this would go beyond Shulchan Aruch, it would be um, to our day how it's interpreted. It seems to me that if you buy something, let's say, in North America that comes shrink wrapped in all of this, you can presume it's new. Okay. But if you buy it even in America, not so wrapped up, you really have no way to know whether it's new or not. It's questionable. It's questionable because it really could have been used and it may look new, but like stores take things back and put them on the shelf mm-hmm. if they're not shrink wrapped and whatever. And certainly when you talk about other countries. So is this one of those situations where if something is questionable, you go to the more stringent and assume that it was used? Totally. So in Judaism in general, um, we go towards the more stringent 
um, possibility when there is what's called a suffix, when there's called a when there's a doubt. So it's the same reason to come to take a completely different topic. It's the same reason that we have something like a machitza or the same reason that we have 25 hours of Shabbat and not 24. We try to create these fences. Uh, now I realize that it's a little bit of a pun when talking about a machitza, but we try to create these fences around the things that we do to make sure that we don't make any mistakes. So we would always take the most stringent opinion if we are worried that we that we could make a mistake, which is why when I PR'd this class, I mentioned that Rabbi Alexander said that this is a dangerous subject to teach because as soon as you know enough, you're actually able to take the lenient opinion, but you have to know all of it to take the lenient opinion. You, you can't just know one little piece of information or else the lenient opinion could lead you to make a mistake. So if you're unsure, it's always best to to do what you think is most stringent. Um, same with, you know, the, the distance or the, the hour weight between meat and milk and milk and meat, right? The, the longer you get, probably the less necessary, but also the more stringent of an opinion. And so it just is dependent upon, um, well, in that case, custom, but also uh, leniencies and stringencies. So yes, and that's kind of how it is in Judaism in general. Um, but great question. And love talking about stringencies. It's a big a fun thing to talk about. Uh, any other questions on this? These are all great questions. Norm, is that a hand? No, okay. Okay. Um, so every instance in which dunking in boiling water, so koshering, Karen, is required, it doesn't help if you scrape them with a tool. So what this is, we can talk about this another time, but um, and we will get to this especially around Pesach. There are certain cases in which, you know, you might have used a pot for 10, 15, 20 years, and so you might have stuff on that pot that you no longer would consider food by any stretch of the imagination. And some might say you need to completely clean the vessel before you kosher it. But if you really can't get the thing off, whether it's rust or some kind of food that has just kind of become part of the pot, it's now pagum, which means it's disgusting. And so it's no longer considered food. And so you don't have to worry that it is either milchic or fleshic. It just, it just is part of the vessel. This is not the case for like a Tupperware, for example. If you have a Tupperware that has a red, I actually just dealt with this with my parents yesterday. Um, they have new Tupperware, like very good Tupperware that I was packing some stuff at their house and I took out the Tupperware and I saw that it was reddish on the bottom of the Tupperware and I put it in the sink. My mom was cleaning dishes and I put it in the sink and my mom said, why did you do that? And I said, well, it clearly needs to go through the dishwasher one more time. It seems to be dirty. And my mom said, no, it's just stained because I had tomato sauce in it um, with pasta. And so then in my mind, I thought to myself, okay, then I can't kosher this kind of Tupperware because if it becomes, if it stains, you know that that item is actually taking in part of the particles from the food that was in it. So it's not like the rust or the food that's now kind of been caked onto the vessel. It is actually a porous enough item that you cannot kosher it. So 
I chose not to use <laughs> that Tupperware because I wasn't sure if it was meat or milk. Um, and I used something else that I knew could be kosher. So it's, it is, it does come into play in other places, but when it comes to something that can be washed off or is so caked on that it, it at no point could have been washed off, it's as if it's part of the vessel and again has this, has this, uh, uh, quality of pagum, which is just means like disgusting and no, no longer food. Um, questions on this. We'll get to pagum later. Yeah, done. The Tupperware that you're talking about was made of hard plastic. Correct. Correct. So are you saying that it's theoretically possible if you have a non-stained hard plastic Tupperware to kosher it? Yeah, so right, Moshe Feinstein talks about this, and so does, um, uh, oh my gosh, someone else. It'll come to me. There are, there are two very famous rabbis, one of whom I can't think of his name, um, who have spoken about Pyrex, which Jeff just asked about, and hard plastic. Uh, and when we were learning about it in rabbinical school, Rabbi Alexander very used actually the exact example I just used, which was tomato sauce in a in a Tupperware. That if it does not stain, which to be honest, most do, and so I, I can't actually think of a hard Tupperware, um, at least that I own, that wouldn't stain if I put a, a dark sauce in it. Um, but yeah, if it, if it won't stain and it doesn't then contain the elements of the food that is put in it, it's considered not porous. And so it uh, it can be kosher. Yeah, Deb. So if it doesn't stain, you could... Kosher it. You could dunk it in boiling water to kosher it, even though that might destroy... So if it's going to destroy it, then you can't, right? If it, so, so there's kind of two, there's two elements, right? I should have made that clear before. There are two elements. Number one, if you can't go through the koshering steps, then you can't kosher it. But if you can go through the koshering steps and it doesn't stain and therefore is not a porous material, then you can kosher it. Pyrex will get to because Pyrex and I don't know enough about the, py the how Pyrex is made, but uh, Ramosha Feinstein, and I'll bring this later when we talk about uh, Pesach, distinguishes Pyrex from glass when it comes to Passover, because Pyrex, I guess, is a more porous material than typical glass and has a different kind of glaze on it. Again, I am I am no uh, I'm no Pyrex maker, but this is what I understand from the chuva. And so there's a difference in opinion of whether or not you can kosher Pyrex for, for Passover. I do. Some people don't. Again, it kind of depends on your, your stringencies, right? Maybe one day when I'm, I don't know, very, very wealthy and have multiple sets of everything and don't need to use my Pyrex bowls for Passover also, maybe I won't, maybe I won't kosher them uh, to hold by that stringent stringency, uh, but for right now, I do. Deb, did you have a follow-up? I cut you off. No, I just, I think that most of the Tupperware that I'm thinking of would get destroyed in the yeah. boiling process, so. Yeah, I've never, I've never koshered Tupperware, um, because exactly the same reason. I just, it's, it either stains or it's going to get destroyed, but if if you find magical Tupperware that uh, is hard enough plastic that can withstand both of those things and uh, does not 
does not um, sting, then you're in business. Yeah, because I just had last night somebody put a par Tupperware with a par Tupperware lid through the dishwasher with a load of milfic dishes. Yeah. So I came across it when I was emptying the dishwasher and I put milfic labels on it now, but I'm just, you know, because I figured it would get destroyed in the... We'll get to dishwashers. We'll get to dishwashers around Passover. It's probably fine and probably still par of, but we'll, we will, uh, we'll get to dishwashers later. But yeah, I mean, again, like that's a stringent... A stringent stance to take and a fine one, you know, a fine one to take. Not, not wrong by any means, probably like overly right. <laughs> so, so that's, it's totally fine. Um, other thoughts on this questions? Okay. Is everybody wishing they were, they didn't keep kosher at this point? Are we, or are we just excited by all of this? See, this is where I get very excited, and I'm ready to kosher every kitchen, and everybody else is like, oh, wow. Uh, get me out of this, please, real fast. Yeah, Tybal. Uh, it's just a, a comment that it's interesting that you say if you had all this discretionary income, that's what you would do. And I always thought if you had that much discretionary in- income, what you do is go on one of those Pesach cruises yeah. or to a Pesach hotel with your entire extended family, and then you don't have to worry about it. So it's just interesting the different aspirations one has. Yeah, it's also very easy for me to say one day when I'm really rich, right? Because, you know, when is that going to happen? So, I, I mean, it's... <laughs> <laughs> it's all a little bit aspirational, but, um, but no, I, I mean, I think that the point that I'm trying to make is that I, I do think even if people are, are well off, they might, as you're saying, like might not choose to be using their money to have six set of dishes, um, to be able to do this. And at the same time, I, I do think that, and this is real. I do think that when we think about halakha in general, not just about koshering, we have to also live in a world where it, we can be financially stable. And so having two dishwashers and having two refrigerators and having two sinks sometimes, um, that all comes at a cost of a lot of different things, water, power, just, you know, room in a home. Uh, and, and it's not always it's not always doable and it also isn't always a priority. And so in order to, to keep kosher, I might've shared this example here. I I don't remember. So excuse me if I'm repeating myself, my brother and sister-in-law, um, got engaged while still living in San Francisco in an apartment about the size of the room that I'm standing in (laughs) right now. And, uh, and they wanted to keep a kosher kitchen because a, it was important to them that I could eat in their kitchen. And also because they were about to start their family and they wanted to start in the, you know, the trajectory of keeping a kosher kitchen because that was important to them. So you wouldn't, Norm. I was just, I was just kind of exaggerating the point. Um, but some people do have two refrigerators because they keep meat in one and dairy in the other. You definitely don't need two, but that would be the reason to have two. Um, and I said to my brother and sister-in-law, just get one set of glass plates. Get, have two sets of, of utensils, but just get one set of glass plates, one set of glass bowls, et cetera, et cetera. Because at the end of the day, when it comes to eating, if you aren't eating every meal at home, which most of us are not, and if we are, we have enough plates to be able to do that, you can eat breakfast on one plate, 
put it aside, use another plate for lunch, put it aside, use another plate for dinner, put it aside, and then let those plates sit for 24 hours and use three other plates the next day, and you'll you'll be okay. And the truth is, if you're using glass and you're putting them through a dishwasher or even just washing them with very hot water and soap, you've, you have pottery plates that you can use for meat and dairy as long as you have enough time in between the use of those things. It takes much more focus and concentration, which is why most of us don't do that. But if someone is strapped for cash and if someone doesn't have enough space, you can totally keep a kosher home by doing that with no problem. So I I do, even though I was making a joke about money, I do think that some of, you know, being Jewish is is not not expensive, right? It's, It's an expensive lifestyle. And... And so anything that you can do to understand the different leniencies that might also help your family financially are are perfectly fine in my book. Uh, yes, the greens. Um, when Andy went for his semester in Israel, yeah, he did one semester, not a whole year. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to visit and they were uh, renting a home that was owned by a family here in Los Angeles that went to Israel frequently mm-hmm. and rented out this home, usually to other people visiting from Los Angeles when they were not in it themselves. Mm-hmm. And that home had glass dishes mm-hmm. and clear Pyrex cookware. Yeah. Even the skillets were clear Pyrex cookware, basically so that whoever was renting could cook whatever they wanted. Yeah, yeah, that is great. And I had the exact opposite experience when I lived in Israel. When I lived in Israel, I lived in a beautiful home and I was very lucky. And this was the one thing that was just even mildly annoying in the beginning, but totally fine. Showed up to the home. There were two sets of plates. One of them was ceramic, and it didn't say which one was dairy or meat. And I, you can't kosher ceramic. So I said to my roommates who had been there a little bit earlier, they went to a different rabbinical school. I won't won't say which one because it wasn't the fault of their rabbinical school. They hadn't yet learned this. But I said, which ones are meat and which ones are dairy? And they said, oh, we just figured we would kosher them all. And I said, no, no, we, we can't do that. So I, I basically uh, said, to, said to them we had to find out from the owner which one was which, and we figured it out, and it was totally fine. But, uh, yeah, having if you're going to Airbnb or rent or whatever, having glass, everything. And now they make white glass. Um, so you can have you know, clear glass, like you, when you say the word glass, what you would picture, you can have clear glass, everything, and then you can have white glass, which I actually have for my part of plates, and that you can distinguish if you wanted between the two and still just have it glass so that if anybody messed up, you know, it would actually, it would still be fine. Um, Okay, I'm going to keep going unless there's any challenge. Okay, great. Um, Okay. Okay. Dine Hagalava Libun, 
Halohem Ktuvim Behilchot Pesach. So <laughs> the laws of Hagalah, the laws of dunking something in water and of Libun, of using fire, um, which in this they call turning, uh, using it until it turns white, are written in the laws of Passover. Great. So if we're, if we're curious of going more into those details, we can find that in the laws of Passover. Um, and, and we will at some point. Um, okay, a pan which was fried on, even though with regards to chametz on Passover, it is enough to dunk it in boiling water. With regards to other forbidden matters, we require whitening through fire. So what this is saying is that that, that, that a pan is different than like a fork, for example, in terms of Hagalah, the dunking in water, or Libun, the fire, that for Hametz, it's funny that it says enough to dunk in boiling water, because that's actually the more stringent, so I'm not sure why it says enough, um, but but you you need to make sure, like, if, if somehow, let's say you're renting out your home, and someone put bacon on a pan, and you found out, and so now you need to kosher it, you would need to put fire to that pan because it's used on fire. So you can't just dunk it. You have to make sure that fire hits it to get rid of that trafe, um, or to get rid of anything that is Esor. When it says Esurim, which you see right here, uh, it's not just talking about things that are forbidden like bacon. It's talking about if it's a milchic pan and something meat goes into it, that's an Esor, right? They, those two things shouldn't be... Uh, shouldn't be together. So it's not just saying Isurim by saying something that you shouldn't eat. It's saying Isurim like a forbidden thing for that vessel. Yeah, Mike. I, it seemed to me uh, that what they may be saying is that uh, if what you have fried is only hamates, then dunking is in, in boiling water is enough to kosher it. Whereas if it's other matters, that might require fire. Like Like if you cooked meat in it, for example. Oh, so you're saying if it's only chametz that's being used? Yeah. Yeah, I just would still think that because chametz is kind of the utmost thing that you need to get rid of, I would just think that it would need to be the other way around, that it would need to be something more stringent. Mm. But but you might be right. You might be right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, that's, it's, I, my guess is that if, because it, because the, the chametz could be on it anywhere, that you need to kind of completely submerge it, whereas something that, you know, if you just fried an egg with cheese by accident in a meat pan, then it just happened on the surface that you could just put that, um, under heat. It's a really good point though. I can look into that. I'm not sure, not sure why the distinction, my go-to with pans is to always just do the most stringent thing with them, um, depending on the size of the pan. That's either Hagalah or, or Libun uh, for Passover, just because there's a handle and there's a whole, you know, the pan, a pan is a much harder thing to deal with than just a plate or um, or a utensil that, that kind of more easily go into uh, koshering vessels. Okay. This one has a long Ramah, but I'm going to, to keep it large, I'm going to just stay in the English here. Okay. If one dunks in boiling water, a vessel which requires whitening by fire, so if you take, um, 
a pan, let's use a pan for an example, if you put it into boiling water, even though it requires this whitening by fire, this libun, the vessel may not be used with hot food even if it is not next to the fire. So you're not allowed to use the food. The, what they mean next to the fire is that there used to actually be a picture of this when we studied this in, in school, that imagine not a stove like we have now, but imagine that there was like a stove which had coil, uh, coals, not coils, <laughs> coals, and you know, firewood, et cetera, et cetera, for the actual like cauldron, so to speak. And then anything to the side of it would be for warming. So it's kind of like what a warming drawer is today, I guess. Like you would have something next to it that nothing's getting cooked per se, but it's staying hot. So when we talk about Shabbat and food being kept warm on Shabbat, it often talks about next to the coals. This is what it's referring to, if you can picture that, kind of like a, a two-tiered experiment where something is actually being cooked next to the thing that is just receiving heat and then being warm. So that's what it's that's what it's talking about here. It can't be used with hot food, and it also can't be even kind of adjacent to the fire, but to warm food on. So it can't be the vessel in which your chuland, for example, goes into just to warm. Not to cook in, but just to warm. Because you've done you've done the koshering wrong. Now what the what the Shulchan Aruch, what Yosef Karo isn't saying here because it's implied to those learning it, is that if you do it the correct way, obviously you can use it. But if you do it the incorrect way, not only can you not cook with it, but you also can't use it as just a vessel to warm in or to have, you know, on the side of, um, of, a, of a cooking surface. Questions on that? Okay. So the Ramah, Rabbi Moshe Israelis, the Ashkenazi gloss, says it is permitted to use for cold food. So this is where um, sometimes you'll hear like Sephardi Jews say, oh, you can definitely not do that. And Ashkenazi Jews are wondering, I do that, I do that all the time. Am I not keeping kosher? Like what? The, so there are stringencies and leniencies that you'll see that are that are different here, and this is a big one. So the Ashkenazi voice says, no, no, you can actually use it for cold food because what do we know about cold food? It doesn't transfer. So even if the item was, quote, koshered incorrectly, you can use it for cold food. So let's say my pan went into boiling water instead of uh, being scorched with with fire, I can now put a salad, don't know why you do this, but I can now put a salad in my pan because it's cold and it's not cooking, it's not even being warmed, it's just a vessel. It's just a, a thing being used, but it's cold and therefore none of that, um, quote, esor is going to transfer. Okay, even from the outset. So that there are two, uh, two categories, bediavad and lechatchila. Lechatchila means from the outset. So if you know something is the way that it is, can you use it? In this case, it's saying yes. Bediavad or bediavad means that if you did not know, right, if you, if you had a doubt or if you didn't know that you had koshered incorrectly, after the fact, it might be okay or not okay, but you didn't do it kind of knowingly. You didn't do it from the outset. So lechatchila is the outset, and bediavad is kind of after the fact, or un not necessarily unknowingly, but after the fact. Let's just go with after the fact for now. Um, 
<laughs> just a, a sidetrack for a second because this is cute. Uh, when we were at Ramah, I think this was Rabbi Alexander's last summer at Ramah, and he always had a thing that he went around and told all the kids because he wanted them to leave knowing some halacha. And so he would say, he would show up at random activities and he would say, Lechatchila, and the kids would say, is the ideal. And then, Bediavad is, oh, and they would say, is real. Because Bediavad is like the, the situation that we're usually in. We don't necessarily know everything about everything, and so we're often in the Bediavad situation. So, as part of the Ramakapella, as part of this acapella group that I was, uh, that I conducted for many years, as part of our CD that year, we did a song, Lechatchila is the ideal, Bediavad is already real. Lechatchila the ideal, Bediavad's already real. Lechatchila is the ideal, Bediavad is really real. And the kids all learned it. <laughs> so there are kids all over the country who know Lechatchila and Bediavad while eating a bacon cheeseburger. Um, okay, so this is this is saying that lechatchila from the outset, you know that that it's permitted to use even if you know that it wasn't kosher correctly. Um, through washing and scrubbing well, and all the more so with regards to a vessel which requires dunking and boiling water. And so it's so the Ramah is basically saying, you know, if you you washed it and you scrubbed it well, and so you did that that part of it, and and if the vessel was supposed to require boiling water and you put it in boiling water, then obviously all the more. So it's kind of stating the obvious that if, if you did it the right way, then obviously you can use it in the way that, um, that, that this thing that wasn't done in the right way is going to be used, which is with cold. But you can also do it if it, if it was not, um, if it was not kosher correctly. And this can only be done in temporary circumstances, such as when a person is in the house of an idol worshiper, or it is after the fact. So, what what the Ramah then goes on to say is, and make sure that this is this isn't your norm, right? That this is the way in which you might act if you're in an Airbnb or if you're in a hotel that has you know a, a kitchen suite or something like that, or you're in the house of someone who doesn't keep kosher, right? You're in the house of, in this case, an idol worshiper. That, or if it's after the fact, right, or if it's um, bediavad, that, that that those are the cases in which you should actually be doing this. You shouldn't you shouldn't always kosher incorrectly and then use those vessels for cold. You should really only do it in in the times when it either needs to be done or you're not really sure if it's done. This is why some people will eat on in anybody's home um, as long as it's cold because they're using their plates. They're not sure how those plates were kosher and they don't know what was on what was on those plates before, but they assume that if they're eating cold food on those plates that it, that it's probably okay. Um if a person wants to use these vessels on a regular basis, there are some who are stringent and say that even to use it with cold, dunking in boiling water or whitening through heat is required. So it's going back to what the Shulchan Aruch said in the beginning, which is 
if you're going to use, if you're in your own home and you're going to use these vessels on a regular basis, do it the right way, right? And also be stringent about it. If it's supposed to be done with fire, do it with fire. If it's supposed to be done with boiling hot water, do it with boiling hot water. Don't, don't guess and don't just do it the way that is most convenient. Do it the correct way so that you can, you can use it in, um, in the correct way. It is decreed lest one come once, I think it's supposed to be one, comes to use it with, with hot, and this is our custom, right? So it, the reason that we are so stringent about this is because you might not remember, oh, that glass plate versus that glass plate, I should only be using this with cold. You're probably going to forget, and you're going to use it for a hot thing, and now, now it's a bigger deal than if you had only used it with cold. And even vessels which were used for cold, if there is a concern that they were used to heat wine, such as a vessel made of silver, our practice is to dunk it in boiling water, and that should not be changed. So something like a kiddish cup, right? If you if you really are only using it for something that's cold, if you are worried that at some point someone put hot cider into your kiddish cup for whatever reason, you should always kosher your kiddish cup with Hagalah. Um, and not with Libun. Now, in today's day, we would only do Hagalah for Kiddush cups, just based on how they're made, but this is probably back in a time when they were a little bit sturdier and could probably have a blowtorch on them. I don't, I don't actually know, but that that's the example that's being used here. Um, so this is, this is very interesting. I think this is probably at a time when, um, when surfaces were being used to eat off of, as opposed to like plates and whatnot. But it says here, chests and tables, which were acquired from idol worshipers. It is our custom to dunk them in boiling water, for they may have spilled something hot on them. And this is specifically from the outset, but after the fact, there is no need to worry about all of this. So if you know that something spilled on a surface that you are going to eat off of, I'll just say it that way for modern day, you should, you should do Hagalah on them. You should you should dunk them in boiling water. And if you're not sure if food was actually spilled on a surface that you're going to eat off of, then you don't have to worry about it. Um, I guess a, a placemat might be one way, one example of this right now. Uh, it's very, when it comes to surfaces, we don't really think about them in the same way anymore because now we have things like cutting boards and uh plates and <laughs> things like that. And so we're less concerned about our tables and our um, uh, countertops and whatnot uh, for just regular costuring purposes. Pass over the whole different issue, but we'll get to that later. Elon. So given that statement, would an ultra observant person not buy an antique dining room set? Wait, say that again? If, if one can't, obviously if you buy a 18th century dining room set. The oh, yeah. odds that somebody ate something non-kosher on it is extremely high, if not, in fact, a lock. Yeah. Um, would somebody who's ultra-observant not do that because one cannot dunk the entire set into one's uh, hot tub? So, <laughs> you know. First of all, I would love to see a Haredi man try to try to dunk anything in a hot tub. Um, but yeah, so I I I don't 
I don't know. I don't know if the Haredi world gets um, gets that specific about what kind of furniture to buy. But again, when it comes to koshering surfaces now, we we don't worry, even the Haredi, don't worry as much about a surface that you're not actually eating off of as they do like a plate. Um, so there's also a a principle of Ben Yomo, and then we'll get into other principles that are even longer than than just 24 hours. But if something stays uh, unused, so to speak, for a certain amount of time, it's as if it's never had anything on it. So my guess is that they would buy furniture that's ancient uh, and have no problem with it, and and just like us like use tablecloths or use placemats and use plates and not and not have to worry about the the koshering of the table i've actually never heard of anybody koshering their table period um i've heard of people koshering countertops which jackie asked a question about in the chat and i've heard people koshering obviously stovetops and whatnot but never never a table so that's my that's my guess <clears throat> that's a great question uh norm karen tybel joanna Woo. I think as a practical matter, anybody buying a fancy dining room table is ordinarily going to have a pad on it and a uh, tablecloth over that. Yeah. Our, our dining table is not even 60 years old yet, and it's the only time it ever is exposed to the air, just uncovered, is at Yom Kippur. Um, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. When I uncover it so I can actually look at it once a year. Um <laughs> And, uh, um, but with respect to countertops or, you know, utilitarian tables, um, would it be sufficient to simply pour boiling water over it? Because obviously I can't take my granite countertop, separate it and dip it into anything reasonable. Um, so, but, but can we simply pour boiling water over it and say, that's it? Totally. And some people choose to do that, and then other people choose to cover with foil, as we've all seen. Um, but yeah, you can you can definitely pour boiling water over certain kinds of countertops. Granted, is one of them, uh, and and be that would that's totally kosherin, especially for Passover. Good. Yep. Yeah. Just be careful and don't uh, don't burn yourself. <laughs> okay, Karen. Norm answered it. Oh wow! Good job, Norm. Just saying. Just saying, thank you. <laughs> Not second grade. Okay, Tybal. Um, I've actually never thought of this before, but um, in part because some of the teaching I do for people who are learning about Judaism who aren't Judaically literate, mm-hmm. I talk about different traditions of how long you wait. My mm-hmm. favorite example being Amsterdam, where there's a community in Amsterdam, they only wait an hour. Yeah. So, you know, the three hours, the six hours, the difference between dairy, but it never occurred to me before until just the surface. If you're from a community that has one of the shorter traditions mm-hmm. and you've had a meat sandwich or an ice cream sandwich, is there a rule about how you have to wash your hands? I have to wash your hands? Like how hot the water should be or how long you wash. I mean, if, if, yeah, if, if there used to be some concern about surfaces, hands, I mean, <sighs> food has, has, oil or juice or or microscopic particles and if you there are many foods that are eaten with your hands mm-hmm. I mean forget how long you have to wait are there rules about not ritual hand washing but 
hand washing between meat and dairy? Um, no. Uh, I mean, I, I, it's a very creative question. <laughs> um, but, and, and Norm is, is laughing. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, there's nothing that, um, there's nothing that talks about transfer of, uh, of like food particles by, by hand or even by, um, uh, yeah, by hand. Uh, the, you know, when, when you're talking about, um, this is where I thought you were going. When you talk about the wait time, some people talk about what, and this is going to be gross, so I'm sorry, uh, but that the wait time is really dependent on your own digestive system and how long it takes for you to no longer taste meat in your mouth. Um, so for some people, that's an hour. For some people, that's three hours. For some people, that's all day, right? That, I, Again, like to go back to the rabbis weren't all doctors conversation, like case in point. Um, but I, but I, I do think that 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 is more kind of what people are referring to when they're talking about quote transfer. Um, but I've never heard them talk about hands touching surfaces. Um, very creative, but I've never, I've never heard that. Though, I mean. There are people who have different countertops for meat and dairy. Super unnecessary, but there are people who do it. Um, and there are people who just have different cutting boards for meat and dairy. Most people have that. Um, and, and they will, uh, they will, you know, decide that, that that is enough, right? That they don't need the, the, um, uh, countertop. Sorry, couldn't think of the word to be meat and dairy. Uh, Joanna and then Norm. Um, so my grandparents who um, were originally from Poland used to tell stories. I feel like the type of countertops and tables they had were probably something akin to like wooden butcher block. Okay. And they would tell stories every year about have every year before Pesach, like part of the koshering getting ready for Pesach process was to take this tool and scrape a layer off the counter and scrape a layer off the table. Yeah. And um, so it's just interesting. Like we've, you know, we don't seem to, uh, to your point, at least today any longer to be concerned about those kinds of things. Yeah, again, I think that's, you know, coming from a time where people were just eating very differently and, um, and, and kind of preparing things very differently. It's also the same reason, uh, that people think that you need two sinks, right? You really don't need two sinks unless you're eating out of your sink. Um, because the only thing that's happening in a sink is that you are either washing a dish or washing a food in order to use it, but it's not, you don't eat out of your sink. So a lot of people have two sinks. I have two sinks. I'm not, I'm not judging anybody who has two sinks, but a lot of people have two sinks for ease, but not because it's necessary. Um, my uncle, when I was a kid, I used to always wonder why he poured boiling water over his sink. And then I never asked any questions. And one day, I think when I was in rabbinical school, actually, he was pouring boiling water around his sink. And I said, what are you doing? <laughs> why do you do this? It's so silly. And he said, well, I do it to, to, to kosher the sink so that I can put the meat dishes in it. 
And I said, oh, sir, you do not need to do that unless you're going to eat the food that is on those dishes that you're about to clean off. So I don't think you're about to eat it. There is no reason for that sink to be one way or the other. Um, but back in the day when people didn't have so many vessels and didn't have so many spaces to uh you know, to, to put food on and in, a sink was probably used for for more preparation than we use one now. So uh, you are correct in terms of like the way that we use our our surfaces and also what they used to be made of, um, which allowed us to do like what your grandparents did and and scrape off, which obviously in today's day we we cannot do. Uh, Norm or Rachel, I just wanted to share every yeah. year. In the early spring, I get a copy of Kashri's Conscience as well as of the OU Guide to Making Pesach. And this last year, I read in some farther right black hat uh, column that some rabbi had written. Um, somebody had inquired about what to do about their hand. They had like a mechanical hand uh-huh. Um, because they had lost their original hand. And he says, this does not need to be koshered. It's a good idea to rinse it in the ordinary way that they ordinarily rinse it. And also, while he was at, he went on to say that if you have false teeth, they do not, you do not have to have a second set and you do not have to kosher them. They're treated as being a part of your body and they do not need to be kosher or koshered. I am so, this is, this is fantastic. I mean, this is the reason to teach this class is for examples like that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, great. Awesome. Uh, Very, very fun examples. Uh, Let's just finish this Saif and then, and then I'll let you all go. So we might go over a minute or two, but I just want to not end us in the middle of a, of a Saif here. Okay. Um, and an earthenware vessel, so something made out of porcelain or, or um, ceramic, which was used for cold, which is impossible to dunk in boiling water, right? So even at this point, we know that you cannot put ceramic in boiling water, even though today you would say to me, Rebecca, of course I can put a pot in, I mean, a, a plate in boiling water. It's not that it's not that you can't today. It's that because it's porous, it doesn't do anything. Back in the day, you probably couldn't. It would probably shatter. Um, but today, it has a certain glaze on it, et cetera, et cetera. You probably could, but because of the material that it's made out of, it even if you could, it doesn't do anything kosher-wise. Um, we consider after the fact bediavad, and we say that it is enough to empty it and scrub it well, and it is permitted to place it in afterwards, even sharp foods like vinegar, or in our case, like garlic and onions, and others like that, and all the more so hard things like spices and other things like that. So uh, it, again, it's talking about things that, that um, uh, um, transfer t- uh, taste or smell or or. Um, like if you cut garlic on a cutting board, everything else is going to taste like garlic if you don't wash it off first. So this is specifically talking about cold, right? We're not talking about something put on hot. Uh, so we're not talking about something hot being put on ceramic. We're talking about something that was cold being put on ceramic. So even though you can't kosher it, this is where we get the idea of if you are in a restaurant and they give you a plate, if you're in an unhectured restaurant, right? I'm not going to say unkosher, but an unhectured restaurant and they give you a ceramic plate, if you're eating a salad on it, you don't have to be worried that that plate potentially had 
um, a different kind of salad with shrimp on it or something, right? You might be worried if that had a hamburger on it beforehand, but if you're at a place like a salad place, for example, and they're only going to give you salads, even if some of the proteins are not kosher proteins, if it's only cold, even if it's served on a, served on a ceramic plate that, can, that cannot be koshered and therefore went through a cycle in the restaurant and, and was not kosher by any means, it's okay because it's cold and there's no transfer of any kind of um, food particles. Yeah, Mike. But right below here, it, it talks about uh, sharp foods such as vinegar and, and certain spices. So if you're yeah. eating a salad and there might have been a salad on before that had bacon in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and so wouldn't that have been transferred by the vinegar and the and the spices? Well, it says that it's permitted to put it in afterwards, even sharp foods and vinegar. So, um, I I I don't know enough about. You mean that the bacon would transfer the vinegar? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that that the vinegar would would transfer whatever it came in contact with to the to the plate. Yeah. So, but again, it's not hot. So I think the distinction that they're making here is actual heat versus things that are considered harif or, or oh, sharp, okay. um, that even though they might transfer in terms of, of taste, right? Like garlic transfers, it's still not hot and therefore it isn't making the vessel, the ceramic vessel, any okay. less kosher, um, by, by that transfer. Cause some vinegars are not are not kosher. Um, Does that make sense? Okay. Um, All right. So we're going to stop here for today. So we're on, we're going to be on the sixth Seif of um, Siman 121 next week. And, uh, and if you have any koshering questions before then, write them down and I will be happy to answer them before we go on and have a great, this was our last class of 2021. See you all in 2022. I'm sure I'll see most of you before 2022, but um, see you all for this halacha class in 2022. All right. Have a great night, Lila Tov. See you soon. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.